can turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Uh, We have been in a sermon series here in the book of Revelation called All Things New, Hope at the Revelation of King Jesus. Uh, And as I mentioned uh, last week and the week before, uh, we would love, uh, if, if you would like a physical Bible, we have some out on the welcome table. You can grab those if you need a physical Bible, or uh, if you have it on your phone or anything like that, get that out, because we're taking bigger chunks of Scripture together and, and jumping around a little bit, and so I want you to see these things in the text. Um, so we're going to be in Revelation chapters 10 and 11 uh, here today. Well, if you've been around City Hope for any length of time, you've probably heard me speak of one of my favorite people of uh, church history, Athanasius of Alexandria. Uh, I love Athanasius so much, I nearly convinced Whitney to let us name Basil, uh, Basil Athanasius, as his middle name. It wasn't close, yeah, no, she, she, it was close in my mind. Uh, But but Ezra does still, when, when Basil's doing something wrong, Ezra still calls him Basil Adam Athanasius. Which to hear a three-year-old say Basil, Adam, Athanasius is pretty cute. So you might want to catch that at some point. But Athanasius is a uh, church father who uh, uh, was a bishop in the African city of Alexandria, uh, nicknamed the Black Dwarf. Uh, and uh, he was this bishop in Alexandria that was uh, incredibly important for the history of the church. Uh, Athanasius was... Um, bishop at a time in which there was great turmoil in the church. There was uh, a false teacher named Arius who had begun to teach that there, he, uh, his famous phrase was, there was a time when he was not, referring to Jesus. That Jesus was a created being, he was a supreme being, he was very highly exalted, but he was not fully God. He was just below. And Athanasius and others Uh, through the Council of Nicaea, and then afterwards defended Orthodox teaching that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Now, uh, that became the Orthodox teaching that we all hold to now, but it did not uh, have an easy path. Uh, Athanasius uh, was subject to many exiles uh, because, uh, depending upon whether the emperor at the time Uh, wanted to agree with the Arians, who were the false teachers, or to agree with the Orthodox party. Most often they just wanted peace, so they would try and agree with the opposite side so that they would generate some peace. But anytime they did that, uh, Athanasius was forced to be exiled. Athanasius stood for the truth of Jesus and suffered like Jesus. He was a faithful witness to the Gospel. And that's really the question for us this morning in this text is what does it mean for the church to be a faithful witness to the gospel? Uh, I want to recap a little bit for us uh, to orient you to where we are. And if you are brand new here today, this is your first Sunday at City Hope. Uh, Sorry, we're like right in the middle of a really intense book. So uh, we'll, we'll try and make sure we, as we walk through, I've tried to uh, keep us up to date on, hey, how are we understanding this book and some of these pieces uh, as we walk through it together? Uh, but in the midst of this section we just covered, uh, we are in a section that's, that's looking at the seven trumpets of judgment. Uh, and remember, each of these sections of the book of Revelation is like uh, a replay uh, looking at a different angle of the same events, right? So it's like this afternoon, you might be watching a football game, 
and uh, it, it, there's going to be a touchdown that's scored, and they're going to show a different angle of that, like four or five, six times from all these different spots. You're going to look at the pylon cam right behind the, right, all these different things. And it's not different events, it's just a different perspective on the same events. That's what the book of Revelation is. There's these seven sections looking at the totality of the church age and God's judgment and salvation and looking at it from different perspectives. And remember, the seven trumpets is looking at it from this perspective of the judgment upon the wicked, those who are unrepentant of their sin, is certain. So that is the hope of this section. That is the, the, or the, the uh, thrust of this section. And we've covered six of those trumpets so far. And just like the last section of Revelation that we covered, there's this one little spot that is a, an interlude. It's like a little break of the judgment uh, to look at the church. And so that's what this is. right? So the rest of this has been about the sure judgment of the wicked. And this is a little break, a little interlude about the church in the midst of the world. This section is about the church and, the, and answers for us how we as the church can be a faithful witness for Jesus. Which, remember, is the point of this book. The point of this book is written to the church to be faithful to Jesus. Remain faithful to Jesus. Uh, it's not a book that's to inform you about when and how the rapture will happen, or who is this person and what is this person and how are they tied to world events happening right now. That's not the point of this book. The point of this book is to cling to Jesus, remain faithful to Jesus, and be a faithful witness. So, to be a faithful witness of Jesus, we, like Athanasius, need to speak the truth about Jesus and then suffer like Jesus. So first, to look at we need to speak the truth about Jesus. All right, so Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. Now, remember, this is apocalyptic literature, and so everything that we look at here is sort of figurative language pointing us to something else. So I want you to remember from chapter 1 and some other places, there's going to be some similar themes as, it descri as John describes what he sees. And so try to think, what could John be describing as we walk through this? Uh, jumped ahead, sorry. There we go. Ah, and in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Keep secret what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, 
but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Right. So again, this is the spot where you look at it and you're like, man, what is happening? <laughs> All right. There's a lot of figurative language here and a lot of Old Testament allusions. Remember, this book is filled with Old Testament allusions. So did anyone have anyone in mind as you were listening to this? There hopefully were a few things that, that stood out. Maybe uh, the, the voice like a lion or feet like pillars or a face that shone like the sun. Frequently throughout the Old Testament, there's this thing that happens in which God is doing something and then He sends this mysterious figure called the angel of the Lord out. And the angel of the Lord shows up and then it's kind of like, wait, is that the angel of the Lord or is that the Lord? Because when He speaks, it kind of makes it sound like maybe it's the Lord Himself and there's this strange identification between the angel of the Lord and the Lord. And you're like, which is this? What is exactly happening? Well, this is very similar to that. This mighty angel who shows up, we believe, is Jesus himself. He comes. Now, now let's think about this. Jesus himself, from a different perspective, he comes here. He has, he's coming on a cloud. In the book of Daniel... Right, which this book alludes to so much, the Lord Himself is going to come on a cloud. He has a rainbow over His head. A rainbow is the covenant symbol. The covenant symbol that God was not going to destroy the world. Remember, this is this covenant symbol. Jesus has this over His head. His face shone like the sun in all glory and honor. And his feet were like pillars of fire. And he's holding an open scroll. Remember that the, the, John sees the scroll earlier on in Revelation and the scroll cannot be opened. And he says he wept because no one was worthy to open the scroll. Well, this one is holding an open scroll. Now, is it the exact same scroll? I don't know exactly, right? Who knows exactly what John is, is doing in the midst of this, but certainly this idea of him holding open a scroll points to the work of Jesus himself. And he has a foot on the sea and a foot on the land. Now, standing over those pieces showcases dominion. Right? To have your foot on something showcases dominion. So he has dominion over both the sea and the land. Which immediately he's going to say, right? He gives this oath to the one in heaven who lives forever and ever. Who did what? Who created the sea and everything in it. And the land and everything in it. So he is the one who has dominion over everything in the land and the sea which God himself created. Again, pointing to this being Jesus. And then he shouts, and his voice is like a lion. Well, where else did we describe somebody who had a voice like a lion? Well, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? That's what John is told when he weeps. He says, wait, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah has come. And he shouts and is answered by thunder. 
Thunder throughout the Old Testament is seen as judgment. Who would answer, like what would thunder answer if it wasn't the voice of God himself? And he has the roar of a lion. So, it's likely that this is this angel here is identified with Jesus himself. And he's standing there, and he tells John to eat this scroll. Now, that is, if you have read through Old Testament prophets, right, there is this idea of eating God's word as a commissioning of a prophet. And so, John himself here is getting commissioned again to prophesy. This recommissioning that John has. He is to identify so closely with the message of God's word that he is to eat it. And it would be sweet like honey to his lips. But why would it be bitter then after he eats it? Well, if you've been with us, John is not announcing pleasant things, is he? (laughs) Right? This section in particular is, you are going to prophesy, and he says at the end here, you must prophesy again about, and and the Greek probably here is a little bit more against, not about. You're going to prophesy against many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Right? And notice the difference there between peoples, nations, languages, and tribes. He inserts kings here. Kings and rulers don't play well in the book of Revelation. <laughs> Just as we get going uh, towards the end here. They, they, they submit to Jesus not willingly, right? And so John is being commissioned here to say hard things. Which is why it's bitter in his stomach. It's sweet to eat, but... This prophecy is bitter in the sense that it is hard to say. It's unpleasant to say. Because he is going to be announcing judgment. Well, the first thing here of how we can apply this section, right? So there's a lot here and we could say, well, that's really interesting, but what does it have to do with us? Well, what I said for us to be a faithful witness means we must speak the truth about Jesus. And this passage tells us much about who Jesus is. Jesus is fully God. He is the exact image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Right right before we jumped back into the book of Revelation, remember we spent some time looking at the incarnation and what does it mean for God himself to take on flesh? And that Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. Now, often for us in the church, we don't grapple with this as much as maybe we should. Because it's sort of assumed, like, okay, yes, we believe that Jesus is God. And so often when we talk about what it means to be faithful and to stand for truth, we are talking about some sort of ethical issues related to the Christian faith that's unpopular to talk about. Now, that's good and true, and it... It's right for us to stand for truth that related to ethical issues, uh, whether that's uh, sexual ethics or decrying white supremacy and racism, both of which are unpopular in different areas of our culture. It is important for us to speak the truth in that arena and be bold with it. Yes, absolutely. But my question for us is, what does the world know us to be fully about? Like if you were to ask a hundred people in Muncie what it is that the church is really about, or what is 
City Hope really about? What are we most fully and fundamentally about? What do they believe? What's the most important thing about them? Would their answer be, oh, those are the folks that believe that Jesus is God? Like those are the folks that are so committed that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is who He says He is. That He is God. Would they know us to be about that truth? So often as Christians we are known for what we're against and not what we're for. And what John informs us is that Jesus Himself comes to commission Him. That Jesus is full of all glory. That Jesus' face shines like the sun. And if we're to learn anything about this book, it's that Jesus is glorious and He is Lord. Are we bold with that truth? Now, I'm not saying that that truth doesn't literally affect every other area of your life. It does, right? The statement, Jesus is Lord, means no one else is. Right? Caesar is not. There's no leader in the early church, that is Lord, right? For, for, for those reading this letter, that would be Caesar, right? That would be the Roman Empire. Right? For us, it would be the president or whoever is in charge of anything, right? Or whoever we make Lord of our life by how we submit to them. Whether that's money or power or sex or government or success or family, right? Declaring that Jesus is Lord meaning, means those cannot be Lord. And we submit our lives fully to Jesus. So absolutely, that affects every other part of our life. But are we known for declaring the goodness of Jesus? Is that what defines us? Because that's what defined the early church. Right? That's why when Athanasius went and the other bishops went to the Council of Nicaea, when Arius presented his work, he was... Summarily rejected. Two bishops out of the 300-ish that were gathered there sided with Arius. Why? Because he prevented them from worshiping Jesus. And what the early church knew is, we, we, we don't have this all worked out yet of what this all means and all the details of what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. We're working that stuff out and there's theological language and all that stuff, but we know we worship Jesus. That's what we know. Is that what we know? And is that what others know about us? Is that what others know about us? You see, it's, it's one of those things that in our world at large, not in this place, that is something that is still very controversial and might cost you your life. Declaring that Jesus is Lord. That He is fully God and that we worship Him and Him alone. But for us to be faithful witnesses to Jesus, we better as his church be about the very things that he tells us to be about, which is most fully him himself. So for the church to be a faithful witness, she must speak the truth about Jesus. And in the midst of that, she must suffer patiently with Jesus. All right, so moving on to chapter 11. I know that there's a lot of details there that I didn't cover. I cannot cover all of these things unless you guys want me to go like two hours. 
I've been going long, so you know I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to rein it back a little bit here, right? So we can't get all the details of every little piece, but I can give you uh, a, a commentary. Uh, it's a shorter commentary, so it's only like 600 pages. So, uh, so if you if you're really geeking out about some of these uh, figurative language pieces, I can give you lots of resources uh, to learn more about it. But but we've, we're trying to hit the, the the main points of this text. So. Chapter 11, then I was given a measuring stick and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers, but do not measure the outer courtyard for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Oh, sorry. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. All right, what's going on here? Now, this is where there's a lot of different interpretations of this passage uh, about what these things mean, uh, what exactly is going on here. But uh, most of how we understand this passage comes from what we understand broadly of the book of Revelation. How we understand Broadly, the book of Revelation affects this total picture. Remember, we have established from the beginning that the time frame of the book of Revelation is between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That that's the time frame that we're looking at. And these seven sections are looking at that time frame, each from a different angle. And one of the things that we can learn about that is that when numbers are used in the book of Revelation, they are figurative and trying to point to different things. And so, uh, this, uh, uh, th- there is this symbolic nature to the book of Revelation and apocalyptic literature. And what's really important is to remember, again, the point of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.3, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to his message and obey what it says, for the time is near. Now, here's what's really important about this, right? Reads this prophecy to the church. The church is the audience of the book of Revelation. And you are to obey it. And so if... If obeying it is simply finding out that the church is going to be raptured out and moved out of the way so that you don't have to experience any of the suffering, you're not really going to be obeying it, right? You're just like waiting and clinging to like, hey, we're going to get out of here and then, then it's going to get real bad. No, no, no. The point is to be faithful in the midst of suffering, meaning it applies to you. So one of the things that we can learn about that is to say that this time frame has to apply to the whole church age. Because otherwise, how could we obey it if it's about something only in the future? So, uh, it means it applies to us. So, let me try to help on a couple of these pieces. When he says, go and measure, uh, measuring something throughout, and we're going to see this later when uh, John measures different parts of the city, uh, the New Jerusalem, this measuring is very similar to what we saw about the sealing of God's people when God's people were sealed. This measuring is about protecting. It's about preserving, right? Counting the number of the individual worshipers is about preserving those who are faithful to God. And he's to measure what? The temple of God. Now in the New Testament, right, and there's much more that we could say about how the temple plays out from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but in the New Testament, what does the temple represent? What is the temple? It's the people of God. You are the temple, right? 
The temple in the Old Testament was the place by which God dwelt with his people. How does God dwell with his people now? Well, the Spirit is in us. We are the temple. We are the building. We are the tabernacle. We are the temple of God. And so, when they are to measure the temple, they are measuring the people of God. They are preserving the people of God. He is measuring the church, the faithful witness. Now, he says, don't measure the outer courtyard. Now, there's lots of options here, but I think the best is to say that this is the place in which the church finds itself. That the temple is located in a place in which they will suffer. That the church is located in a place within this outer courtyard where it says that has been handed over to the world and they will trample it. It is a place of suffering and being trampled. So the church is being sealed in order to suffer. Now it says uh, that they will trample the holy city. Again, the, the holy city is another reference to the church, right? Jerusalem throughout the book is referencing the church. This place in which we will be. And so the church, the New Jerusalem, the Holy City, will be trampled for 42 months. Okay. Now what does that mean? Right? So 42 months is three and a half years, which is the same as 1,260 days. Right? Roughly. So, so those are the same time frame. So what could possibly that mean? Now there's lots of crazy interpretations about like specific times and these being literal and as I say again, if these numbers are literal, then Jesus has seven eyes. Because that number is also figurative, I think. So I think this number is figurative. But what is this time frame? Well, Daniel refers to a time, time, and half a time in his prophecy. Which is a Jewish way of saying three and a half years. And so this is a reference back to Daniel. Again, to remember back to these prophecies that Daniel is saying about the end times, which is present right now. So all John is trying to do is get your head around this idea. And you might be thinking, well, John, that's not a very good way to get my head around these ideas. But apocalyptic literature, if you're steeped in the Old Testament, that's what he was trying to do to the culture in which he was writing. It's also half of a week, right? Uh, this, this other section here is going to be, oh, sorry, sorry, that's later. Uh, there's three and a half days later, sorry. Um, so this this. This time frame, this 1260 days, shows up again in chapter 12. We're going to talk about it again. But it's the fullness of the church age. That's what that time frame means. Right? Again, remember, this is an interlude in where we've gone through these six trumpets. We're about to get to the seventh trumpet. This is just a little pause to say this is about the church in the midst of those trumpets. Right? Here's the church in the midst of all of those trumpets. Also, Elijah the prophet who's about to be mentioned here in a moment, had a ministry of judgment that lasted three and a half years. Jesus refers to it in Luke 4. Certainly, there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed, when there was no rain because of judgment, for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. So a reference to this three and a half years is also a reference to the ministry of Elijah, which was a ministry of judgment. Which is exactly what John is proclaiming, right? Right? So this is just always to alert you to John is acting in this other way, like Elijah. Also, when Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years wandering, they had exactly 42 separate encampments. So again, 
right? These numbers are referencing this idea of the church in suffering. It's the whole point of this, right? So if we're just to summarize this section, it's the church in suffering. It's a lot of layered metaphors, right? It's like, well, this means that sort of, but it also means this sort of, and that's just the way apocalyptic literature works, okay? So as we try and sort through it, we've got to try and figure out, okay, why, why, why does John use this and why does John use that? And it's so that we can understand these layered metaphors that, that it's not just a, an easy one-to-one, and that's okay. All right, so the, in this wilderness time, a prophetic judgment time, both of those are times of suffering in which you need to remain faithful. And that's the point. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Remember lampstand earlier on. We saw this in the very beginning of the book, right? There were seven lampstands, right? They represented the seven churches that Jesus was writing to in the beginning of the book of John. So a lampstand is a church. So why only two now instead of seven? Well, if you were to establish something in the Old Testament as like, hey, this is this thing, you needed to establish it by two witnesses, right? So there are two witnesses to Jesus. Also, if you look at the letters that we read, if you remember earlier, there's only two churches who are not admonished. So this is a reference to the faithful church, right? John is saying, out of those seven churches that we talked about, two did not get admonished. It's the faithful church who is suffering. That's all this faithful or these two prophets are. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn rivers and oceans into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. Now, the church does not have that literal power, do we? I mean, I... Maybe we're missing something. We gotta like apply for something to be able to get this so we can stop the rain and, and strike the White River and turn it into blood, which you know may may improve the White River. Who knows? Uh, right? Like th- this this isn't this literal depiction, right? Who struck the river and turned it to blood? Moses. Who was the one who shut up the heavens? Elijah. This is Hearkening back to prophetic witness. The church has to be like Elijah and Moses who were faithful in the midst of suffering. That's all this is, right? It's referencing that. And this reference to the fire coming from their mouth, right, is just that they will be preserved. They will ultimately not be destroyed. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes out from the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and, they, and he will conquer and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. 
But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them, and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice came from heaven and called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. All right, so what's going on here? This, the church has been identified with Elijah and Moses, these faithful prophets of God. The church has been told, you're going to suffer in the midst of this. You need to remain faithful in the midst of that. And then the church is told that it will experience the ministry of Jesus. Who was trampled? Who was in the tomb for three days? Who was then risen from the dead and ascended into heaven? Right? Did you notice all of those things? It's exactly the ministry of Jesus. It's the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus into heaven. What John is saying is, I saw a vision that made it look like the church is going to experience what Jesus experienced. Jesus suffered and yet remained faithful. Suffering like Jesus. Being maligned like Jesus. Dying. You see, the church has this unique combination of being bold with the truth of the person of Jesus and steadfastly committed to those truths. So committed that you're willing to die for them. Not kill for what you believe, but die for what you believe. Die like Jesus did. This is the steadfast witness of the church throughout history and throughout the New Testament that we, in order to be faithful, will have to suffer. That faithfulness is not just a commitment to the truth and being a jerk to my neighbors who disagree, but being committed to the truth and being humble and loving my neighbors who disagree. Loving my enemies who disagree. Loving them unto death. Not their death. Our death. That's what it means to be faithful witness to Jesus is that we have said we are so committed to the person of Jesus. He is so wonderful and lovely. And if you hate us because of that, we will still love you. We will still care for you. We will still reach out to you. And even if it costs us our reputation, even if it costs us our very lives, we will still maintain our integrity and suffer like Jesus did. Hebrews says the same thing to us. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates in the outer courtyard, just like John sees for the temple, to make his people holy by means of his own blood. So in light of that, what what does the writer to the Hebrews say? So let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Brothers and sisters, we don't really face that level of persecution here. But our brothers and sisters around the world do. 
Remember in November, we prayed for the persecuted church and there's that map there on the wall of praying for the persecuted church. Our brothers and sisters around the world do actually face death for believing these things. And we are united with them. We are part of that one temple with them. They are ours and we are theirs. They face very real things. But we do face real things, not death, but that's, we do face very real things of being maligned, ridiculed, taken advantage of, ignored, right? Remember, part of the encouragement given to the church was don't compromise with the empire in order to gain wealth or status or any of those things. You have to remain faithful to Jesus. And again, faithfulness to Jesus is proclaiming who He is and loving our neighbor in the midst of suffering. What is our response to any of any challenge or any suffering in our lives? I don't know about you, but my response often is to defend. To defend myself. To fight back against those things. I don't like suffering. I don't like it. I want to defend myself. I want to make sure everyone, everyone knows that the record is set straight. Well, if you want to follow Jesus, you can't do that. Because there are just times where that's not going to be possible and you're just going to be misunderstood and maligned. You're going to be told that you're being hateful even when you're doing your best, to, your very best to repent and love and be honest about those things and continue to love. It's the reality of what we walk into. Our response often is to defend or fight back or get winning political candidates that will stand up for our rights or acquire money and social status or lawyers to defend us. It might be to fight, like a mentality of fighting. Or it might be a mentality of flight. We'll just compromise on truth to avoid suffering. Right? We'll just, we'll just like, well, well we, don't, we don't really believe that stuff. We, no one has to know what we believe. Let's just hide. Both of those don't look like Jesus. We are so bold with the truth of Jesus being Lord because we need to be so bold about that truth so that we can suffer like Him in this world. This is the calling of the kingdom. Now, why would we do that? Why remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of that? Well, after three and a half days of this suffering, which is half a week, right? Remember, seven is the term of fullness. So half of seven could be this idea of uh, we've gotten through the, the Old Testament age and now we're in the church age, the second half. Could be one of the references to what he's referring to, but also Jesus in the tomb for three days. But what do we experience after that? Resurrection. John goes on to say, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices shouting in heaven, The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. He will reign forever and ever. This is why we think all of these uh, sections, right, are covering the fullness of the church age, because look, this is the end, right? We're, we're only in the middle of the book, and we've already reached the end of the world, Right? <laughs> The world has become the kingdom of Christ. Seventh trumpet has been blown. 
He will reign forever and ever. The the 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshipped Him. And they said, We give thanks to You, Lord God, the Almighty, the One who is and who always was and who is to come. No, wait, it doesn't say that. Because He's already come. Right? Earlier it said, the One who is, who was, and who is to come. But in this, He doesn't say that because this is a vision of Jesus already having returned. The end happening. John is seeing the end. For now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets. Your servants, the prophets. Who are the prophets? Well, Elijah and Moses, what did they represent? The church. Reward your church who has remained faithful as well as your holy people and all who fear your name from the least to the greatest. It's time to destroy all who have uh, caused destruction on the earth. Then in heaven, the temple of God was opened and the ark of His covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. Remember, we saw this at the end of the last section. That's how this section ends, right? End of the world. That's what that last little section is. Lightning flash, thunder crash, right? End of the world. But why do we suffer like this? Because we get the world. The whole world. Jesus has said, I'm prepping it for you. The world has become the kingdom of Christ. A kingdom with no end and no suffering where every tear will be wiped, where death will reign no more, where there will be no sorrow or pain, and where God's people will rejoice and worship God. Where we will rejoice and worship God. Now here's what's so encouraging about this passage. The temple is opened, right? John sees right into the temple. What does he see in the temple? He sees the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, if you were with us when we went through uh, Exodus and we talked about the temple and the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, what separated the Ark of the Covenant from the temple? A curtain, a veil. Why? Because common people couldn't go into the presence of God. What happened when Jesus died? The veil was torn from top to bottom. The presence of God is open. You see, this is the thing. The kingdom of Christ will become the world, yes. But we get access to that right now. Jesus is presence with us right now. It's not just a cling, hold on, suffer just a little while longer, white knuckle it because glory is coming. Yes, glory is coming, but you don't just have to white knuckle it now. You can actually experience a foretaste of what is coming right now because the temple is open and you can see the ark. God has said, come into my very presence. Come near, church. I'm with you. You're not going to suffer alone. The reason we're going to suffer like Jesus is because Jesus suffered in our place. And He's going to suffer with us now. He is present with us. 
we together can be a body of Christ together. You know, so often when we think of what it means to be faithful to Jesus, we think of what does my life personally mean to be faithful to Jesus? If that's how you're thinking, you're not going to make it. You can't be faithful to Jesus on your own. You need each other. We need to be the temple of God together who has the very presence of Christ with us, near to us, in one another. The Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, dwells in you. Which means if you want to be close to God, you know what you got to get close to? The people of God. That's how we do this thing together. It's how we're faithful together. We can be near to His presence because He is good. Because He is faithful to us, we can be faithful to Him in this world. Proclaiming the goodness of who He is and what He has done and suffering like Him in loving our neighbor. Now, this is for those who are trusting in Jesus. Friends, like I said uh, like I've said a couple of times throughout this sermon series, John is declaring what is certain. Jesus, who stands with his feet on the sea and on the land, has dominion over all things. This will happen. He will come. And he will bring judgment upon the world. And he will reward those who are his people. And those who are his people those whom He will reward are not those who are perfect and have it all together, but those who are, acknowledge their sinfulness and flee to the Lamb who was slain. Or as John says, those who have dipped their robes in the blood of the Lamb and have made them white. Those who have made themselves pure by the blood of Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not trusting in Jesus and Him alone for salvation. You can come because the world will become the kingdom of Christ. And you can come be a part of it. Because Jesus loves you. And suffered and died in your place so that you can know Him. And you can become a Christian by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus and Him alone. And if you are a Christian, you're trusting in Jesus and Him alone. You need to know that the temple is open and the presence of Christ is for you. He's available to you. And so in the midst of whatever you're facing, you can be faithful to who Jesus is and faithful to love like Jesus in the midst of suffering because He is with you. He is with us. So let's pray now together for Him to continue to work in and through us. Jesus, we pray to You now because we desperately need you. You are glorious. You are Lord. You are King. You deserve all glory and honor and majesty and praise. And yet, Lord, the world does not give you that. And often we don't. So, Lord, would you forgive us? And would you help us to come and to worship you? And would that worship of you transform us that we would go into the world and suffer like you and proclaim your glory? Jesus, would you be honored in all these things, we pray in Christ's name.
Amen. Amen. I invite you guys to stand now.